this morning is from Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. <clears throat> and they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this, all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I, will, <clears throat> and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple <clears throat> and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Appreciate this time of worship that we've been able to participate in together. It's good to be back with you. I missed being with you last Sunday morning, but I appreciate Jacob for stepping in and filling in for me. I heard from several of you that Jacob did a tremendous job, and really I didn't have to hear it from you because I heard both sermons myself and know that he did a tremendous job, so appreciate everything that he does for our church family. I've been asked the question about a million times now, have I gotten any sleep? And my answer to that is, what is sleep? I think you're going to have to define that term for me, so stick with me. I, I told uh, one individual out in the foyer, I, I hope I'm able to make sense this morning. We'll, we'll just see if we can get this across. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke, the fourth chapter. Luke chapter 4, and appreciate Joseph reading for us verses 1 through 13. We're going to continue our study there this morning. Luke chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 13. In so many different areas in our lives, there's good and there's bad. There's black and there's white. There's righteousness and there's evil. There are the good guys and there are the bad guys. We see that in so many different places, don't we? Take, for instance, the Batman and the Joker. We know who the good guy is and we know who the bad guy is. The Batman is the hero the Joker is the villain. For our Star Wars fans, don't know how many of those we have here this morning, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Darth Vader. Even if you don't know a lot about Star Wars, you know that Obi-Wan Kenobi is the hero, the good guy. Darth Vader is the villain, the bad guy. If you have a blue lightsaber or a green lightsaber, that means that you're good. If you have a red lightsaber, then that means that you're bad. What about Dorothy and the Wicked Witch of the West? Pretty obvious to tell the difference between who's good and who's bad, especially considering one of them has the term wicked in her title. The term wicked 
in her name. I don't know how many of you are going to agree with me on this, but my favorite animated Disney movie is Aladdin. In Aladdin, if you've seen the movie, Aladdin is, of course, the good guy, the protagonist, and Jafar is the bad guy. He's the antagonist. This is true in sports, too. What about Tennessee and Kentucky? I'll let you decide who's good and who's bad. I know what I think, and I think I know what you think, too, but we won't make a public statement on that one just for the sake of illustration. We see it in our own lives. So often we have to make decisions. You have what's good on one side, you have what's bad on the other side. You have sin on one side, you have righteousness on the other. Have you ever been in those situations where you have the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other shoulder, and they're telling you exact opposite things? Well, looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, it's pretty easy to tell the difference between who's good and who's bad, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. It's pretty easy to tell the difference between sin and righteousness between good and evil. This morning we're finishing up our series of sermons on the topic of temptation. When it comes to temptation, it's important for us to realize that we have both an enemy and an example. Both of those are presented to us in this passage of Scripture. If you think back about three weeks ago, we spent time in Luke 4 verses 1-13 through 13 talking about our enemy in temptation. We thought about the idea that's presented in 1 Peter 5 and verse number 8 that we have an adversary, the devil. The devil, Satan, is our enemy. And he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 gives us some insight into how our enemy works in the process of temptation. We saw that he presents diverse temptations to us. 1 John 2 and verse 16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. He attempts to use God's Word against us. If Satan can't get you to do something evil, then he's going to try to pervert and twist the Word of God in your heart and in your mind. Our enemy in temptation, he doesn't give up. He's very persistent. He comes to us time and time and time again. We have an enemy in temptation. Someone who wants to devour us. Somebody who wants to destroy us spiritually. And we need to know that. But as we look at this passage, perhaps an even more important idea is that we don't just have an enemy in temptation. We have an example in temptation. Who is that example? That example is our Lord Jesus Christ. In temptation, we should seek to respond In the very same way that Jesus did. I love how John says that in a very general way. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As Christians, we don't just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. If we're going to claim to abide in Jesus, if we're going to claim to live our lives in Jesus, if we're going to claim to be Christians, disciples of the Lord, then we must choose to walk in the way that he walked. We have to live the way that He lived. We have to talk the way that He talked. We have to think the way that He thought. Specifically, when it comes to temptation, we have to respond to temptation in the very same way that He did. We have to follow the example. We have to follow the pattern that He has left for us. But then we run into a question. What what kind of example has He left for us? When Jesus was tempted by Satan, how did He respond? How did He react? What kind of pattern has Jesus left behind that we need to be intent on following? 
I want to give three ideas to you, then the lesson's going to be yours. Number one, if we're going to overcome temptation by following Jesus' example, then we have to be Spirit-filled and we have to be Spirit-led. If you look at the story that takes place right before this one in the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, you go back to Luke 3, verses 21 and 22, and you read about the baptism of Jesus. Notice in 21, now when all the people were baptized, literally immersed, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and look what happened. The Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. Notice that it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove. The Holy Spirit looked like a dove. It says the Holy Spirit descended on Him as He was buried in the waters of the Jordan River by John the Baptist in bodily form like a dove. From this point forward, the Holy Spirit is going to live within Jesus. From this point forward, the Holy Spirit is going to empower Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to lead and direct and guide the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in the very first verse of our passage this morning, don't you? It's mentioned twice in just one verse. I think that's meant to emphasize to us how important the involvement of the Holy Spirit is. Notice as you read verse 1, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. The picture there is one of taking a glass and filling it up with water all the way to the top, all the way to the brim. Since we're in Mayfield, maybe you're not filling up your glass with water. Maybe you're filling up your glass with sundrop or something like that. But this is the picture. You're taking a glass that you have. You're filling it all the way to the top. That's the kind of language that's used to describe Jesus here. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit of God. He's not the first person to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. If you go to Luke chapter 1 and verse number 15, the angel is speaking prophetically about John the Baptist and says about halfway through that verse, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Then you go to Luke chapter 1 and verse number 41. Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to meet Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. The Bible says at the end of that verse, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we read about her husband, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and as a result received the ability to prophesy. That same language here is applied to Jesus. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He is filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit of God. But then keep reading. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Just like Simeon, a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 2 and verse 27, just like He came in the Spirit into the temple, Jesus comes in the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. As Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted, notice He's not doing that on His own initiative. He's not doing that by His own choice. Instead, He's submitting Himself to the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. You find it mentioned twice in just one verse at the very beginning of the text. How was Jesus able to overcome temptation? We see in the very first verse that He didn't do it by Himself. Jesus did not overcome temptation based on His own strength or His own power or His own ability. He overcame temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He was Spirit-filled. He was Spirit-led. And I believe that's one of the reasons He was able to be victorious in Luke chapter 4, verses 1-13. through I know that the Holy Spirit's not going to empower us to do miraculous things like He empowered Jesus to do miraculous things, but wouldn't you say this principle remains true? If we're going to be victorious over temptation, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we have to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. Thinking back a few months ago, we spent about 17 weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. Talking about how He is involved and engaged in our lives on a daily basis. While I certainly don't want to rehash every detail of that conversation, what I do want to say is, notice how the Spirit is showing up again. Notice how these ideas are showing up again. It shows us how important the Spirit is. It shows us how important His work is. We can't neglect the Holy Spirit. We can't forget about the Holy Spirit in our lives on a daily basis. We said in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, it was when Jesus was baptized that the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. That same thing happens today. When we're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, according to Acts 2 and verse 38, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to live inside of us. He descends on us when we're buried and raised up out of the waters of baptism. Have you made the decision to do that? Have you made the decision to repent of your sins, change your ways, be buried, immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you haven't made that decision, then the Spirit's not living inside of you. The Spirit's not dwelling inside of you. If you have made that decision, then everything has changed. Everything is different. It's then that we're able to move on to passages like Ephesians 5 and verse number 18 where Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. What did it say about Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1? That He was full of the Holy Spirit. Paul looks at the church at Ephesus and he looks at us today Don't get drunk with wine because that's debauchery or wastefulness, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he tells us how to be filled with the Spirit. Five things. First, we address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Second, we sing. Third, we make melody to the Lord with our hearts. Fourth, we give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fifth, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Can you say right now, That you're living a life that is full of the Holy Spirit. Filled to the brim with the Spirit of God. Are we obeying this command and following Jesus' example? What about the second statement there in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1 where Jesus is being led by the Spirit as He goes into the wilderness? In Romans 8 and verse number 14, Paul says all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If we're going to be children of God, then we must submit to the guidance and the leadership of the Spirit of God. So often we think that we have everything figured out. We think that we can guide and direct our own steps. And the Bible presents a different message. If we're going to be children of God, then we must submit to the guidance of the Spirit of God. I've said it before in this series. I'm going to say it again right now. We can't overcome temptation by ourselves. We need to get really comfortable with that idea. We need to understand that idea as clear as day. You and I cannot overcome temptation if we're trying to do it by ourselves. If we're trying to overcome temptation based on our own strength and our own power and our our own ability, we might be successful for a little while. But eventually that success is going to fade and we're going to fall flat on our faces. 
If we're going to be victorious over temptation and follow the example of Jesus, then we have to be Spirit-filled and we have to be Spirit-led. Number two, in order to follow Jesus' example in overcoming temptation, we have to know and apply what the Scriptures teach in our lives. In Luke chapter 4 and verse number 2, notice Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And during that 40-day period, He didn't eat anything. When those days were ended, of course, He was hungry. So this is when the devil steps in in verse number 3. He said to Jesus, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There He's appealing to the desires of the flesh. He's tempting Jesus to doubt God's provision in the wilderness. He's tempting Jesus to act independently of God. To use the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for His own personal and selfish gain. I know that you're hungry. You haven't eaten anything in 40 days. If you're really the Son of God, command this rock right here to become a piece of bread. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 4. Jesus answered him, if you like to write in your Bible, then I want to encourage you to underline these next three words. Jesus answered him, it is written. Satan comes along and presents a temptation right in front of Jesus. If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answers him by saying, it is written. He goes to the Scriptures and he quotes a part of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 3. Man does not live by bread alone. How does that phrase finish? We sing it sometimes, don't we? Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. If you're really the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. It is written, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus recognizes that His life is not just based on physical sustenance of bread. His life is based on and dependent on the spiritual sustenance that comes from God's Word. He doesn't live His life on bread alone. He lives His life based on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus knows Scripture. He applies it in this specific situation and as a result is victorious over the temptation. But Satan doesn't give up. Remember we said that he's very persistent. And so he continues in verse number 5. He appeals to the desires of the eyes. The devil took him up, Matthew says, on top of a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a single moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The desires of the eyes. Jesus, look at all of these kingdoms. Look at all of their glory. Look at all of their authority. I will give it all to you as the ruler of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. How does Jesus respond? Once again, verse number 8, Jesus answered him, underline these three words, it is written. Once again, Jesus turns to the words that have been written down in the inspired Word of God this time, he goes a couple chapters back to Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve. I'll give all this to you, Jesus. I, I know that you want peop all people to be under your reign. I know that you want all people to serve you. I'll give you all nations if you fall down and worship me. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that because of what's been written. 
I'm not going to fall down and worship you because the Word of God teaches me that I worship God and God alone. I serve Him and Him exclusively. You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only you shall serve. That's why I'm not going to fall down and worship you. He knows Scripture. He applies Scripture and is victorious over the temptation. And then Satan tries a third time. Verse 9, He took him to Jerusalem, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, hundreds of feet up in the air, and said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then notice that Satan uses those three words that Jesus has been using, for it is written. And he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Uses this passage out of context. Uses this passage inappropriately to say, Jesus, if you jump off the top of the pinnacle of the temple here, you know what the Bible says. God's going to send His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They're going to bear you up on their hands and not even allow you to strike your foot against a stone. How does Jesus respond? This time, He doesn't say it's written. He says very closely related phrase means the same thing. It is said. Underline those three words. It is said. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 16. Satan is tempting Jesus to say something like, you know God, I don't know if you're going to take care of me. I don't know if you're going to provide for me, so I'm going to test you. I'm going to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and see what you're going to do. Trying to force God's hand. Putting Him to the test to see if He's really going to care for His Son. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that because of what the Bible says. I'm not going to do that because I know Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16 says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's exactly what He would be doing here. Would you say that Jesus has a very clear and precise plan for overcoming temptation? I believe that He does. Every time He goes to the Scriptures. He goes to what has been written down. He goes to what God has said in His inspired Word. He knows Scripture. It's memorized. It's in His heart. It's in His mind. He applies it in the specific situation and as a result, is victorious over the temptation. I believe that we would be wise to follow that example, don't you? We would be wise to follow that pattern from Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 1-13. through 13. This is the first Sunday of 2024. Maybe some of you going into this new year have thought to yourself, I want to read the Bible more in 2024 than I did in 2023. I want to spend more time reading and studying the Scriptures. I want you to know from this passage, when, you're, when you spend more time reading the Bible, you're not just going to grow in knowledge. You're not just going to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You're going to grow in your ability to resist temptation in your life. If we're going to follow Jesus' example, we have to know and apply the Scriptures. There was a man who needed a very serious surgery, so he went to go see a surgeon. He got to the surgeon's office just a little bit early, went into the surgeon's office, and when he opened up the door and saw the surgeon sitting at his desk, he had a book open that he was reading very intently. But when the surgeon saw the patient, he quickly shut the book and put it to the side. The patient noticed that he was reading the Bible. And so he asked him, does that help you at all in your line of work? Does it help you to read the Bible? The surgeon said, yeah, it really does help me to read the Bible. Well, when does it help you? The patient asked. Does it help you before you 
go into surgery to know that God is with you to give you some confidence? Does it help you after surgery to give you peace to, to, to know even if things went wrong that then God's going to be with me? He said, yeah, it, the Bible helps me before surgery. It helps me after surgery. But it helps me the most during surgery. And the same is true when it comes to temptation. The Word of God is going to help you before you go into temptation. The Word of God is going to help you when you come out of temptation. But perhaps most significantly, the Word of God helps you when you're in the midst of temptation. When that temptation is taking place, when we know the Scriptures, when we're active in reading and studying the Scriptures, when we memorize the Scriptures, we store them up in our hearts and have the ability to apply them in our lives we're going to be able to stand up to temptation. When Satan presents that temptation in front of us, when he puts it right in front of our faces, we're going to be able to look at it and say, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to go there. That's not going to be who I am because of what has been written. Because of what the Word of God says. It's in my heart. I'm applying it in my life. And that's why I'm not going to give in. I believe that Psalm 119 and verse 11 summarizes well what Jesus does in this passage. I've stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. When we store up God's Word in our hearts, we're going to have a lot easier time not sinning against Him. We have an example in temptation. In this passage, our example teaches us to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. He teaches us to know and apply the Scriptures in the specific situations that we find ourselves in. But then I love this third idea that we're going to close with this morning. Our example in temptation is present with us. He walks with us throughout every single temptation that we face. Jesus is our example in temptation. An example to be followed. But He's not just an example to be followed. Jesus Christ is our pattern that we need to study, that we need to learn so that we can live it out in our lives. But He's not just a pattern to look at and to study and to learn from. The same example that we read about here in Luke chapter 4, who teaches us to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led, who teaches us to know and apply the Scriptures, walks with us throughout every temptation that we face. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a comforting thought? He doesn't just give us an example to follow. He gives us a hand to hold. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm sure that you are too. The book of Hebrews presents that idea to us in a couple of different places. First, we find in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 that Jesus sympathizes with us. Notice the Hebrew writer says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When you go through something, you're then able to relate to, you're able to understand better those who go through that same thing. You're able to sympathize with them. You know what they're feeling. You know what they're going through. The Bible says when we're tempted, Jesus understands what we're going through. Jesus is able to relate to us. Jesus is not one who sits in heaven watching us be tempted, wondering, I don't know how hard that is. I wonder how difficult it is to actually overcome that temptation. Because of Luke chapter 4, because Jesus has been there, because Jesus has done that, He's able to sympathize with us when we're struggling through temptation. The only difference between us and Him is that He was always without sin. 
He never gave in to the temptation. It's a beautiful thought to say, Jesus Christ doesn't just give us an example to follow, but He's sitting in heaven, sympathizing with us when we struggle. But I think we can take that another step forward. I think we can go another notch up from Jesus sympathizing with us if we go back just a couple of chapters. From Hebrews 2 and verse 18, we learn that Jesus doesn't just sympathize with us, He helps us. There's a big difference between those two. It's a step up from sympathizing to helping. Think about it like this. Let's say that it's 100 degrees outside and you're out mowing the yard in the hot sun. I can sympathize with you. I can sit in the air conditioning, look out at you on that lawnmower and say, wow, I, I know how hard that is. I know how difficult it is to sit out in the 100 degree weather, the sun beating down on you. I know that I would like to have a glass of water or a glass of lemonade if, if, if I was the one who was out there. It takes it up another level to say, okay, I see that you're mowing the yard out there and, and I'm sympathizing with you in that. So I'm going to put on my old clothes and I'm going to go get the weed eater and I'm going to help you. Or I'm going to get the blower and I'm, I, I'm going to blow the grass off of the sidewalk. It's a step up to go from sympathizing with someone to actually helping them. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus takes that step up in Hebrews 2 and verse 18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. We might be deceived into thinking that this was easy for Jesus in Luke chapter 4. It was easy for Him to resist temptation. It was easy for Him to stand up to Satan. How does it describe Jesus in Hebrews 2 and verse 18? He what when tempted? He suffered. This was difficult for Jesus. This was painful for Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. He suffered when he was tempted, but we should be so thankful for that. Because he suffered when he was tempted, because he's been there, because he's done that, because he knows exactly what it's like, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus doesn't look down on us only saying, I know how hard that is. Jesus says, let me help you. And maybe that help looks different in different circumstances. Maybe sometimes He helps us by giving us strength. Maybe sometimes He helps us by giving us peace. Maybe sometimes He helps us by giving us grace, mercy, forgiveness. The list could go on and on. Our example in temptation is not just an example, but He's one who is present in our lives. He's engaged and present in every single temptation that we face throughout our lives. And so this morning, may we learn not just to follow His example, but to embrace and to trust in His presence in our lives. When you say that temptation is a topic that we need to think about as a church family, it's something that we all go through. In this series of lessons, we've attempted to understand temptation. From James 1, verses 13-15, through 15, temptation is inevitable. It's not from God. Instead, it's from our desires. And when we give in to that desire, we enter into a downward spiral where desire leads to sin, and sin leads to death. We've talked about from 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 what we need to do to overcome temptation. We seek help from others. No temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. And we also place our faith and trust in the Lord, recognizing we can't do it on our own. God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with every single temptation, He provides a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. As we mentioned at the beginning of our lesson, we've discussed our enemy in temptation and how he works. We're not ignorant of his schemes. 
But even more importantly, we have an example in temptation. An example who teaches us to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. An example that teaches us to spend time with the Scriptures so that we can know them and apply them in our lives. An example who walks with us and is present with us every second of every day. We said that this is the first Sunday of 2024. Maybe looking back on 2023, you have some temptations that you want to leave behind. You have some temptations, some sins that you've struggled with that you want to kick to the curb. What do you need to do in order to make that happen? The question this morning is, what do you need to do in order to follow the perfect example of Jesus Christ? Remember that you can't do it by yourself. Maybe you need your church family in order to do that. We'd love to help you, love to pray for you, encourage you, anything we can do. As together we stand and sing. I'm always paranoid they're talking about me. <clears throat> Welcome once again to our services this morning at Seven Oaks. We had 127 attendants for Bible study, 254 for our morning worship, invite you back tonight at 6 p.m. for our evening assembly, and on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. for our midweek Bible study. Have one addition to our prayer list this morning. That is Gary Payne. Uh, this is Alicia Grover's dad, uh, who has MRSA, 
and is on dialysis and, and not doing well at all. In fact, um, Alicia's with him in the hospital this morning, and so we want to definitely keep all that family uh, in our prayers as that's a, a, a bad situation there for, for her father. Uh, I received a thank you card from the Wilson family. It says, thanks to all who called, texted, sent cards, and brought or made food during the loss of our mom and grandma, Clarine Wilson. Thanks to all who prepared and helped with the meal following the funeral. The food was delicious, and we truly appreciated it. Our church family is very special to us. We love you all. Thanks again, Benny, Laurie, Eli, Annika, Wade, and Max Wilson. Under other announcements, Sheila will be in her office today after morning worship to hand out scholarship checks. Tonight there will be a teen devotional after evening services. Guys are asked to bring chips. The girls are asked to bring drinks for tonight. Also, after we dismiss this morning, there will be a brief parents meeting uh, for parents who have uh, children in the youth group. This is from kindergarten age all the way up through high school. And Jacob reiterates it's a quick meeting, and that will be in this front classroom up here where the ladies used to meet to have their uh, evening classes. So it's in that front classroom back there, so it's just right after dismissal. Uh, also, this evening will be question and answer for our evening uh, worship service, so please come uh, make plans to be here for that. Also, there's a sign-up sheet on the volunteer table for the um, local area Bible Bowl. This is for kindergarten through 12th graders. The sign-up deadline for that is January the 28th. Those are all the announcements that I had this morning. Anything that I overlooked or misspoke on? If not, if you would, please be standing and I'll dismiss this in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God and Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had this morning to come here and to worship you. So thankful for this congregation that meets here and for the love for each other and the, the ability we have to share in good times and in bad. Lord, this morning we want to bring Gary Payne before you in our prayers and ask you to be with, with him and with his family, with Alicia and Mark and all, all of uh, the rest of their family and just pray that you could, uh, could help them through a difficult time. Lord, thank you for Tyler and for the lesson that he brought this morning, that each of us might be able to take it and apply it to our lives, to be thankful for the example that we have in dealing with temptation. We just pray, Lord, that you might always continue to be with us and to help us endure when we're tempted and to see us safely through to the other side. Please watch over us and forgive us when we sin. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and amen.